And for the rest of us, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are starting a new series today on 1 John. If you'd like to hear me preach on 2nd and 3rd John, you can go to our website, to YouTube, to our podcast. I don't know if we have any other ones. We have, we have a lot of ways for you guys to hear this week's, to hear the sermons throughout the weeks. But you're going to look for a series called Small Books, Big Impact. And I preach on 2nd and 3rd John at that time because those are one chapter books. First John, so this sermon's kind of a prequel to all those um, in cinematic terms. Um, First John is a little longer than those with four chapters. Um, Primarily, this is a letter about preserving unity and fellowship in the church. We use the word fellowship a lot in church, but fellowship is much more than hanging out, drinking an awesome cup of Black Rifle coffee. It's what the Greeks called, what the words you'll see in the New Testament, koinonia. And that's kind of the pun I use today, a coin-operated church. I know how to spell coin. It's a, it's a pun. Um, admire it or hiss at it, whichever. Um, but that's how churches operate, is on koinonia, on fellowship. And it's much more than just hanging out or even liking the same kinds of things. It's being united with one another and association with one another. And it is what churches are built on. They are built on unity, and where that unity comes from is what's important. Unity in the body of Christ is important. Before Jesus was crucified, he prayed to the Father that we would be one as he and his Father were, am, and will always be one. Unfortunately, largely in churches, we don't know what unity means. Sometimes we think unity means Everybody, there's no disagreements. There's never a problem in the church. There is no church that exists like that, including in the scripture. There was even issues. There was even problems. There was even people butting heads in scripture, but they were still unified. Now, a church where everybody has the same opinions, believes the same exact things on all things, there's never a problem, that's a cult. Because everybody's too afraid to actually express the issues that they're having. But here's the amazing thing in the church of Jesus Christ, that God can bring a bunch of people from different points of view, different opinions, and he can bring them together and we can be truly unified. Unity doesn't mean where there are zero issues or disagreements in the church. Such unity is uniformity. Also, it doesn't mean just affirmations of creeds and doctrines either. A person can can say that, yes, I believe what the church believes. But if they don't live that, if they don't teach that, they tell other people against that, that proves that they don't truly believe it. So oftentimes in the past, in church membership, people agree to a certain set of beliefs, and then all of a sudden, like, you're part of the church, even if the person lives like the devil, Monday through Saturday, and then they come to church on Sunday. God's not fooled by that. God doesn't see that as you just being part of a group. God's more concerned about where the heart is, because what unifies us is not simply by saying, yes, I affirm these doctrines, Most would say that if a person just says that they are a Christian, that is enough. Others would point to verses about declaring Jesus is Lord, and they would say as long as a person says out loud that Jesus is Lord, then that makes them part of the unity of the church. Or even people take the verse out of context in 1 John that says anybody who says that Jesus came in the flesh, that they are also good. 
What truly unifies us, however, is the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the regeneration of our hearts. This is seen in the person's faithful conduct, not perfection. We all sin, we all stumble. But if you are having experience with Jesus Christ, it affects the way you live. Everybody does what they believe. This is a very simple truth, but it's probably one of the most oppressive truths, because oftentimes we do things we know we ought not to. And we'll say, that didn't come from me. Yes, it did. Or you say something stupid, and you're like, oh, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everyone does what they believe. I'm not talking about perfection, but I'm saying faithful conduct by degree should be evident in every Christian's life. In 1 John, John will spell that out for us. The actions do not save a person, but they are a result of salvation. The author of 1 John, the author of 1 John here, we, we believe to be John. Before I get into that, I want to talk further about church unity. There are those who are wolves in sheep's clothing who will say that they agree with, that they believe in the orthodox, meaning the correct doctrines of the church. They will then preach against, teach against, write books against. In fact, many years ago, a few years ago, actually, a man wrote a book about universalism. That's the idea that everybody, despite their conduct, what they believe, are going to eventually go to heaven. And he was being called on this, and people were really, you know, holding his feet to the fire. And he was saying, um, I, still, I still believe in the Apostles' Creed. I still believe in the Apostles' Creed. Let's get out the bread. Let's get out the wine. Probably not AG, but whatever. Um, and, and we can be brothers. And the person very, very wisely said, no, because what you teach is an abomination, and we have no fellowship together. The author of 1 John, we believe, is John. And right now you're like, duh, Pastor Jason, it says it right there. But actually, in the letter itself, John does not identify himself. So how do we know that John wrote this epistle? Well, two major reasons. One, this epistle, this letter, reads very much like the Gospel of John. In fact, in the beginning of the beginning of this one, sounds very much like the Gospel of John. It flows the same way. It uses the same um, same um, figurative language. But we also know this from history. John, the apostle, um, he had a disciple named Polycarp. Polycarp is, um, was a bishop in what is modern-day Turkey, which in John's time would have been Ephesus. The seven churches of Revelation that John writes to are in modern-day Turkey-ish area. Um, Polycarp was his disciple. He lived to 86 years old. The way we know this is that he was martyred for his faith. The Roman government was cracking down on Christians. They came to his house to take him to be burned at the stake. And when they came to him, they, they asked him, they gave him one last opportunity to pinch the incense to Caesar. That meant that see, and say, Caesar is Lord. That's why in the Bible it says, when you declare Jesus is Lord, it's not just simply saying the words. That was a death sentence in first century Rome. And these words that Polycarp said back, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Polycarp and his disciple, Irenaeus, both confirmed that John, the disciple of Jesus, was the author of 1 John. John goes by many different titles or names. He is John, he is John the Evangelist or John the, the Apostle. He was one of the twelve, the brother of James. Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. If you ever wonder, does Jesus have a sense of humor? He does. We don't catch it because we're not from that culture. It's kind of like the first time if you've ever watched a British TV show, and you're like hitting the you're hitting the the, the TV, and you're like, "Be funny! I'm not getting any of this. It's too dry." Jesus did have a sense of humor, and this is one of the one of the times Jesus shows his sense of humor in Mark 17. He calls them the sons of thunder. This is because. They were mistreated, and they asked Jesus, hey, can we call down fire from heaven? That's lightning. Down on them, like, can we just kill them all? Wouldn't this be great? And Jesus is like, hold on, hold on. So after that, he's like, the sun's the thunder here. <laughs> what, a great, what a great way to express. He's also known as John the Evangelist because he had a passionate, bold, 
excitement about telling others about the Jesus Christ he knew in the flesh. He was there for his, for his crucifixion, and he was there for his resurrection. He is also known by the, by the church fathers as John the Revelator. He's the one who wrote the book of Revelation. Like I said before, John had a passionate enthusiasm about telling others about Christ. He was bold. And for his boldness, for his boldness, he, the emperor at the time, the emperor named Dalmatian, had John exiled to an island after boiling him in oil. He is the only one of the 12 apostles we believe died a natural death. After being boiled in oil, I mean, I don't know how natural that is, but, uh, he did die of an old age, and he is exiled to the island of Patmos. And I'm sure the emperor thought, that's done with John. However, John had seen Jesus. Amen. He had touched him. He had heard him with his ears. He had he seen him with his eyes. And that man cannot be shut up. He cannot be threatened. He cannot be bullied. Not by the devil, and not by the 102nd Dalmatian either. He is also known as John the Beloved. That's a nice little history, Disney hybrid of a joke, isn't it? Anyway, he's also known as John the Beloved. He's known as John the Beloved because when he wrote the Gospel of John, he doesn't identify himself by name, but he'll say he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. John thirteen twenty three. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclined at, at Jesus' side. I have to imagine when the other disciples read his gospel, their first reaction when they wrote back to him, so you know Jesus loved me too, right? I want to make sure you know that and you tell other people that, please. You're not the only one he loved. That is why in John's letters, they are written in an emotional language. The metaphors he uses are intimate. They are relational. They are, they are out of a passionate, emotional heart. There's a translation that is absolutely not a translation. At length, I have spoken against this one. It adds and subtracts to the word of God. It's called the Passion Translation. And its chief contention is that it is, it is translating God's words into the language of emotion. That has already happened. John, the one whom the Lord loved, wrote these words. The name of the author and the audience are not clearly identified. Mostly, we see these letters being used in the community that sprung up around John's ministry. What is modern-day Ephesus? Well, I mean, sorry, modern-day Turkey. Perhaps it was even the seven churches of Revelation. The purpose is much clearer in 1 John. It is to restore fellowship, to restore koinonia, to get the church operated on a coin-operated system with Jesus, Jesus Christ's sheep. To do this, the apostle, and by extension, every believer must push back against false teaching, for false teaching is what destroys koinonia. It's what divides the church. Not those who point it out, but those who purvey it. Most importantly, false teaching, most teaching, it's against Christ himself. John saw Christ in the flesh, Jesus Christ in the flesh. John wrote the gospel of John. He also wrote first and second and third John and Revelation. There is a movement that has been going on for quite a while called Red Letter Christianity. What that means is that they only go by the red letters you find in the scripture, the words of Jesus. Here's why that's stupid, not to put a delicate phrase on it. Is that the same human author who writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation is the same person who held the pen who wrote the Gospel of John. So why would we trust him to adequately, without bias, write down the words of Jesus Christ, but not the words of the Holy Spirit we find in the rest of his teachings. All of scriptures God breathes, not just the red letters, but the blue letters as well. They all come from the very heart of God and are to be learned, believed, rejoiced over, mourned over when it comes around to us because they are for our betterment in Christ Jesus. The word heresy, this is, most of the New Testament deals with heresy. Heresy in its broadest sense is just false teachings about God. But my professor in college had a great definition of heresy. I thought it was the best one, Brother Thurber, if you're wondering, Becca. And it was any teaching that if believed would damn somebody to hell. Any teaching that if it was believed and put into practice would damn somebody to hell. 
The chief of all heresies are Christological heresies, which are heresies against the nature and person and teachings of Jesus Christ. John in his Gospels would say that Jesus is the Word, in archaeologos. That's how John, the Gospel of John, begins. In the, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No wonder so much attack on Christianity attacks primarily God's word first. The first attack against God was against his word, for the serpent told Eve, did God really say? Jesus is the gospel. So to have a different Jesus Christ is to have a different gospel. And Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, Let him be accursed or eternally condemned. Isn't it amazing? Two major world religions, the LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, and Islam, start with an angel appearing to a man and preaching to him a different gospel. It's almost like the Holy Spirit wanted to give us a warning that this was going to happen and to be ready for this, to know what was going on. The entire letter will be getting back to this question. Who is Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples, Who do you say I am? Is he a good man done in by a bad system? A role model for those who are suffering? A good teacher? Is he a man possessed by the Spirit of God? A miracle worker? Who was Jesus? Was he always God? Was he just a man? This letter gives that answer, reminds us once again by what unifies us, by what we have koinonia in. This is an intro. We are just going over the intro today. And it's an intro with a kick. John goes full tilt from square one. Within the first four verses, he has already asserted the true teachings of Jesus Christ, and he will judge all other teachings by this central teaching of what he has seen, what he has heard, and what he knows. And he will break into all aspects of the false teaching. In these first four verses here, we have the beginning, we have what life is, and then truly what fellowship is. In verse 1, in the beginning, verse 1 right here, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, with which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 1 John 1.1 and John 1.1 start out very similar manner. He starts with at the beginning. In John 1, 1, it was the very beginning. In 1 John, he calls back to the reality that Christ is from the beginning. There is never a time where Jesus Christ was not. From the beginning was Christ. This is also a reminder that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God became flesh. Flesh did not become God. No, that's probably the central tenet of all false teaching is that flesh can become God. That you are your own God. If you're not already your own God, you can become God. There are so many permutations of this. It would take me all morning to go over them, so I'm not going to. But the gospel says, God became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And he is, I, John is reminding them, he is an eyewitness of this. First John reminds his readers that he and others who are still alive are eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They heard his voice with their ears, they saw him with their eyes, and they touched him with their hands. This is in stark contrast to the teachings, that, uh, teachings of those who did not even see Christ but want to tell you what Jesus Christ is like. There's teachings at John's time that people were just hallucinating a body. I'm going to get into that in my next point about Gnosticisms in detail. But there was this thing that if you're walking with the beach, on the beach with Jesus Christ, there would only be one set of footprints. Now, that's much different than the poem of the footprints. No, they, they were teaching you'd hallucinate this because the Spirit of God would be with you, but not the physical body. And John's like, I saw him. I touched him. You can't tell me any different. And there are those today who will say, no, no, I I had a vision of God. He told me these things. We judge it by God's word because we know that they had seen, that they had heard. This is the original gospel of Jesus Christ. John and others experienced Jesus Christ 
knowing that he is fully God and fully man. This is important because there are those who who have never experienced Jesus who want to tell people another gospel. It's the same it's the same today. People will say all kinds of things that Jesus would fill in the blank. Or this last year Jesus would wear a mask. Jesus would go to pride parades. Jesus would use people's preferred pronoun. Jesus would shop at at Walmart or whatever you want to say. Here's the thing. How do you know what Jesus would do if you don't know what Jesus did do? That's why I thought WWJD was always kind of stupid. Because it's like, before we start asking the question, what would Jesus do? Let's talk about what Jesus did do. Because there'd be people who say, well, Jesus would never hurt anybody's feelings. What about the rich young ruler whom he loved? That man went away weeping. Oh, G- Jesus Jesus would never get angry or upset when people are being numbskullish. That's my word. Trademark. Um, Jesus took a whip and whipped them out of the courts. Amen. He turned over tables. All the times people want to tell you what Jesus is like, we should go to the source, his very word for such a thing. Amen. And that's what John says, that he is, that Jesus Christ is the word of life. The word of life. You may already know the Greek word for word, but if you don't, I'm going to tell you. And if you already know, I'm going to remind you. It's logos. Logos. It means word, yes, but it means logic. The understanding behind words. Jesus isn't a word of life. He is ho a logos. The word. Most people are okay with Jesus being a word. If Jesus is a word, it leaves room for other kinds of words. If Jesus is just a word, then the words of Buddha are good. The words of Muhammad are good. And here's probably really what people go down to with this. My word is good. I get to determine what the word should be, what the logic should be, what the truth should be. But if he is the word, ha-logos, then there is no room for any other word than his, for he is the word of life. And it is found in no other. Logic is found in no other. Life is found in no other. Reason is found in no other. We often make this mistake when, when we do Bible studies and we'll ask, well, what does this mean to you? And even I've done that, but here's the thing. It doesn't matter what it means to you. You're not the word of life. You have an opinion, great. But you are not the word of life. There is but one word of life. He is oh logos zoe. That's my second point. He is life. In verse two, the life, ho zoe, zoe is the Greek word for life. If we go back to John's gospel, chapter one, verse four, John will say that in him is life, and that life was the light of mankind. Verse two starts off by saying Jesus is the life. Once again, using the definite article the, as in no others. Not a or and, but the. In him is life, and in him is the ultimate expression of life. Since the, fall, since the fall, when God told Adam and Eve that if they ate from that tree, that they would surely die, mankind has been trying to find life in any other source than the author of life, and they are utterly disappointed It is why C.S. Lewis wrote, Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The main issue that John is dealing with in his his region, in what is modern-day Turkey, was known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism, like so many other heresies, wants to transform God into power, into an impersonal power, rather than the person of power. Verse 2 is John setting up his argument for, um, his setting up his argument. The Gnostics then and the Gnostics today try to separate Christ from Jesus, God from the God-man. John, John uses Jesus Christ. When someone wants to play fast and loose with the Bible, they will say that God has no gender. They are trying to make God into an impersonal force. To make him like Star Wars. You know why people want to do this? Why all world religions do this? Because if he's just an impersonal force, I can manipulate him. And he does what I want. But if he is the person and the source of all life, logic, and being, then I am at his service. 
That he should be the one telling me what to do, as opposed to me telling him what he should be doing. It puts him as Lord instead of me. There is no Christ outside of Jesus. As the Christmas song, wreathed in flesh, the Godhead sees. The power is a person. He would rather have an, he would, but we would rather have an impersonal power because we can exploit that. If the person, if the power is a person, then, then he is Lord and we are not and we are at his service. Gnosticism plays a huge part in the New Testament. Um, I'm going to go over briefly with you as begin this because this is what's unspoken in 1 John. This is what he's pushing up against. One of the first heresies in the early church, and, and you better believe it's a Christological heresy, is that of Gnosticism, which is spelt with a G, a silent G. They believed that they had secret knowledge. That through angels or other spirits or God himself had given them secret knowledge that went against the gospel that was once preached. Our God is very open with what he wants us to know and the secret things of God are secret and they are secret to all. The result of, the result of Gnosticism was the blending together of Christianity and the Greek religion and philosophy. This is known as synchronism. In almost every culture on the earth, well-meaning but utterly foolish people have been trying to use synchronism to try to reach people. But if you try to blend the cross of Christ with anything else, you water it down to the point where there is no power in it. You may know of voodooism. Voodooism is a... Oh, you are awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> voodooism is the synchronism between Christianity and African religions. It's not a fully other religion. What happens when you put Christ with anything else? You get nothing. Christ plus anything else is nothing. And this is what in the very first century, already in, in the early church, we have this going on. And Paul the Apostle predicted this. Now this is being written to what is in Paul's time, Ephesus. John becomes basically the pastor apostle of this area. But before Paul left Ephesus, Ephesus, he wrote, I mean, he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, For I know after my departure, wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. And from among your own selves will all rise men speaking twisted things to drive away the disciples after them. And in 1 John, this is happening. These Gnostics are coming in and they are drawing people away. And John is trying to connect this because what? Why? He wants to restore koinonia amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me tell you about Gnosticism for a, for a moment. Gnosticism primarily centered around the Greek philosophy regarding the physical world. Gnostics and Greek philosophy believed that the physical world was trash, excrement. It was gross. It, was just, it had nothing redeeming about it, and only the spirit mattered. If you want to know more about that philosophy, you can read Plato's Republic. So this influenced the church in this, the idea that what you did in the body didn't matter. But it does matter. Because God did not make human beings in spirit first and then in, and then in the physical world. I know this goes against a lot of popular teaching, but scripture teaching is that we are a unified being, body, soul, and spirit. That when God made Adam, he formed him out of the clay of the earth. He breathed on him and he became a living soul. Not he made a living soul and he put it into the clay body. He breathed on him and he became a living soul. When we die now, we are separated from the body. This is an unnatural state. Thanks to the sin of our first mother and father. But there will come a day where our body will be resurrected. We need to start talking about the resurrection more in church because that, if you can't read the New Testament without hearing it, being beat over the head by it, Amen. that we are a unified being. So Gnostics would come in and they would say, the physical body, the physical body just doesn't matter. There's a, there's a quote attributed to C.S. Lewis. It's not a true quote, but it says, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. This is wrong. This is wrong. You are a unified being, body, soul, and spirit. 
You are a unified being, body, soul, and spirit. And one day you will be reunited with your physical body, which will be sown perishable, but be reaped imperishable. It'll be reaped as a new body, as Christ's own body was resurrected. Death now is unnatural, but one day death will die when God resurrects those who are in him to eternal life. Bad theology creates bad thinking, and bad thinking leads to bad actions. The Gnostics separated into two groups we see historically, the aesthetics and the libertines. Libertines, a French word, basically means do what you want, indulge yourself. We see this being pushed against at various points in the New Testament where Paul the Apostle will say, should we continue to sin so grace may be may increased? Absolutely not. Libertines would say that because the body is because the body doesn't matter, it has no effect on your soul, do what you want. The body's already corrupted and it can never, so whatever you do in your body will not corrupt your soul. It's all inward testimony. It's all inward witness. And what you do, engage in sexual acts outside of marriage, destroy your body, whatever, it'll have no effect on your soul. This is patently wrong in every sense. In Oscar Wilde's book or short story, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Dorian Gray is a young man. He looks like a young man. He looks beautiful. He never seems to age. But at home, he has a picture. And that picture is just, it's a horror to behold. Because all of his sins, all of the age is on that picture. Oscar Wilde was a well-known libertine. And it's almost like in that short story, he's telling people, I look great on the outside, but if you could see my soul, you would know. You would know where I'm at. You would know the desperate state I'm in. That was one side of it. The other side was the aesthetics. The aesthetics believed that in no way, shape, or form could you enjoy anything of this earth, the common blessings of God. So they would put ash on things that they were eating so that they couldn't taste it. They'd beat their bodies bloody. They would deny themselves every common grace. But all things on this earth are made for you to use, enjoy, and give praise and glory to God. Because if you don't do that, then you are robbing him of his glory. You are robbing him of the thanksgiving and worship you owe him. Bad, the- bad theology leads to bad thinking. Bad thinking leads to bad actions. And Christ is denied of, his, denied of his glory. One of the chief Gnostics, especially for John personally, was a guy named Centrus. Centrus is what many, many um, commentators believe that First John was kind of a subtext talking about. Now, I don't know if that's true or not because it's not stated in the scripture. But I thought Centrus, he was an interesting fellow. Um, he, was, uh, he was the enemy of John. There's a story that, is, that was uh, relayed by um, Polycarp, the disciple of John. I've talked about him before. And this story about two meeting in a public bathhouse. John quickly left because he would not bathe in the same water as such an enemy of truth. According to Erasmus, the disciple of Polycarp, when he wrote his book on Against Heresies, book 1, chapter 28, if you're interested, he spoke of Centrus and that he taught that Jesus was not born a virgin. Remember the guy before I talked about who wrote a book about universalism? Well, there were warning signs about him well before that, because before that he said, if we lost the virgin birth, we wouldn't lose much. Many people said, we'd lose everything. If God's lying about that, he's lying about everything else. Isn't that that funny how these old heresies, they just recycle themselves. If you know about church history, we also know from Ecclesiastes, right? Nothing's new under the sun. They just recycle themselves. So Centrus taught that, uh, that Jesus was not born of a virgin, but naturally and only became Christ at his baptism. Then Christ left him at the cross and came back for the resurrection. This is what he was doing. This is what he was teaching. That God the Son is not the same as the physical person of Jesus Christ. This seems wild, doesn't it? But I'm going to tell you that this teaching is still around today amongst very popular people. But this is what they're doing. They're separating the person, the human being of Jesus Christ, and God the Son. They're indivisible. They cannot be separated. This is, if believed, would send somebody to hell. And the people who teach this have that to look forward to unless they repent. He wanted to separate 
Christ from Jesus. And that is why you'll see in 1 John, John carefully uses the, the words Christ and Jesus together. That he is not divisible. That the spirit of Christ is not simply an attitude to have a, a positive thinking, but that God became flesh. There are modern Gnostics today. Now they don't come out and say, hey, I'm a Gnostic, everybody. But these are the people John is writing against. They preach Christ as though he is not a person. He is more like a force from Star, Star Wars or a state of mind. Today, this is called... This, is, this teaching is called the Universal Christ. It is, taught, it is taught by a charlatan named Richard Rohr. Look up Richard Rohr on the internet. You'll see his reach is wide. His reach is long. Here are some of his quotes. These are his exact words. We spent a great deal of time worshiping the messenger and trying to get other people to do the same. Speaking of Jesus. He said that Jesus did ask us several times to follow him, but never once to worship him. A person who believes that is destined for hell. This is not kind. I don't care what he looks like. This man is vicious. Anything that, he says, this is his words again, anything that drives you out of yourself in a positive way is operating as God for you. Every time you choose to love, you are in touch with the divine personality. Get this. You do not even need to call it God. Remember what I said before? All world religion wants to make you the God. Like the Gnostics before him, he wants to separate Jesus from Christ. Now, you probably don't know Richard Rohr, but you probably know people he has greatly influenced and people who preach his same message. The Christian worship group Gunger, for instance. Michael Gunger is a devotee of Richard Rohr. Michael Gunger has a podcast. He has his own little cult going on in which he teaches this very doctrine. And many people have a shipwrecked faith over it. Oprah Winfrey considers him a close personal friend. And this one I thought was surprising, but this one has kind of ran off on it on, on, on its own. Kevin Max of DC Talk. In fact, he just came out with an album called The Universal Christ. He wrote, a, him, and his, him and DC Talk had that song, I want to be in the light as you are in the light. Shine. That's from 1 John. And 1 John is calling out Kevin Max for preaching a universal Christ, for trying to separate Christ from Jesus, between, between the God and the man, but he is truly the God-man, Jesus Christ. Richard Rohr is revered by Melinda Gates and is close to Bono. But they are not the only modern-day Gnostics. You have so many who will come up with dreams, visions that contradict the Bible, and they'll say, ignore what God has said, listen to me, that is the spirit of Gnosticism. Those who claim to have new revelation, that is the spirit of Gnosticism. Gnostics are, are, all, about, are all about hidden knowledge and secret knowledge. I.H. Marshall identifies the opposition John was writing against in this, and this is a direct quote. Were, they were Christians who felt that they had moved beyond the elementary stages of orthodox theology to a new position which called orthodox affirmations into question. Let me unpack that for you. There are many people who go around, okay, that's just the, that's just the kiddie stuff. Let me tell you the deep things of God. And they won't use the Bible. Warning, Will Robinson, warning. Something's wrong here. What do they know? They have this secret knowledge that they are trying to pervert. They are doing exactly what Paul warned people would come in to do. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. By this definition, everyone who says, I don't care what the Bible says, let me tell you about God. Or instead of searching the scriptures, they run with visions, dreams, and prophecies that are not under the authority of the scripture. They are also Gnostics. In verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It was with the Father. 
John 17, 5, Jesus' words, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That God did not come upon a man, God became a man. To preach anything other than who Christ truly is when what he taught is to preach a different gospel. In verse 3, brings it to the purpose of this whole letter that we will explore through the next coming weeks, which is this, to restore fellowship. Verse 3, And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have koinonia with us. And indeed, our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is a very positive start to the, to the letter. We are the children of God. You and me, we are the children of God. Let us stand firm in the faith we profess. Let us stand as a bastion against these attacks on the very nature of who God is. We are the people of God. We have koinonia with one another. I said before that fellowship isn't just potlucks or watching a movie together. It's a unity of mind and spirit. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It's what makes a church a church. Churches are koin-operated. Fellowship, koinonia, is the unity of believers. It is broken when what unifies us cannot be found. Specifically, the, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and the proper belief in who he is. Koinonia isn't, isn't just having similar interests, but being associated with one another. It's intimate. It's intimate. Why, why we say we are a fam, that is why we say we are a family here at Faith Church. Christ binds his church together by taking people out of the word. That's one of the words for the church in the New Testament. Ecclesia, which means those who are called out. Now that we are called out, God binds us together in koinonia. Koinonia, that is when the emotion and the connection between us as believers is evident. It's something we know without even being told. You may have never heard the word koinonia today, but you knew what I was talking about. Because you've had a moment where you were talking with a stranger and you're like, there's something different about them. I'm just going to ask. Are you a Christian? Are you a believer? And they're like, yeah, you are too, aren't you? You start talking about the goodness of Jesus Christ. And even if you're from completely different worlds, there's a connection there stronger than even family. All of a sudden you have a koinonia and then... Then and there, even though your lives could not be more different, they are connected to one another. It's why we take communion, is that we remind ourselves that we have koinonia with the brothers and sisters throughout time and around the world. One of my joys when me and Becca are traveling and we're gone on a Sunday is to attend a church. Is to attend a church because it's such an incredible experience is to meet people from a different place, but we're still brothers and sisters in the Lord. You find this if you, get, if you get the joy of traveling abroad, going to another country. People there did not grow up the way you grew up. They do not think the way you think. But your brothers and sisters, nonetheless, if they are in Christ and you are in Christ. I remember when I was in Africa. Now I had many, I had many opportunities, many times of fellowship and koinonia with believers. But I remember having a very short interaction with a man who was around my age, how old was I then? 36, 35? I don't know. I was in Africa at some point in time. And, uh, and we were talking. He was just about to take his first church as the senior pastor. And in my life at the time, I was about to take my first church as a senior pastor, this church. I'd already talked, I've already spoken with Rocky. By the way, if you ever have a problem with what's going on in the church, you can blame Rocky. He brought me here. Um, <laughs> And I knew, I knew in, the, in my spirit, and it seemed right to me, and it seemed right to the, to the Holy Spirit that this is going to happen. And I remember talking with him, and just things we were talking about, they were so similar. I mean, he lived in Botswana, Africa. I grew up in North Dakota. And when I went over there, it was, it was, it was summer here, and it was winter there, and it was the same temperature. And that's how different a world it was. But I felt such a closeness to him, and he felt such a closeness to me. And I have many other stories like that. When we were at, when we were at um, General Council, Becca um, and uh, Pastor Curtis, 
We were there and we were um, at Maggiano's Little Italy. We we're sitting down and this big group comes in and uh, they, they get seated and they start talking. And we quickly kind of learn by eavesdropping, by the way, if I'm ever in a restaurant and you're in a restaurant and me and my wife are quiet, we're listening to your conversation. <laughs> And we were listening in, and uh, and we we hear they're from Hawaii, and they're 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 here for the general council, and we're like, this is really cool. And there's this one lady who was like sitting right next to me. She kept bumping into me, and she said, "Okay, enough of this. My name is so and so. What's your name?" We start talking. We start talking about well, we've been to Hawaii, and she's like, "You were there. Why didn't you visit me?" <laughs> like, next time we go, we will. And we we just kind of like we were in separate tables, but we were almost sort of just like put the tables together because the whole time we were just all of a sudden part of their group because we were all about one purpose. We were there for one reason. We all had a similar mindset. We had a koinonia together. And they really made us feel welcome because all of a sudden we they get a bunch of gifts, Hawaiian chocolates. I mean, Hawaiian coffee, Kona coffee. I mean, it was awesome. That is one of the blessings. People are like, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's such a terrible mindset. You get to go to church, Christian. You get to be with other Christians. You get to struggle against other Christians. That's a blessing. You get to bump heads with other Christians. That's a good thing, because that's how iron sharpens iron. We often think that any kind of issue is, okay, we don't have unity. No, we have a unity if, if we have the same mission and vision. That is, we put Christ in the forefront. There are barriers to unity. Koinonia can be broken. If you break what unifies koinonia in the first place, koinonia has been broken. Oftentimes, it's, it's the people who notice and call out the breaking of unity that are called dividers. These are people like Elijah. But I like what Elijah said when Ahab said, oh, you troubler of Israel. He said, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You're the troubler of Israel. I didn't cause the break. You caused the break. It's false beliefs and teaching concerning the one who brought, bought us with his very blood. False teaching about essentials break unity. The only way back is repentance. And if that will not happen, then the person or group needs to be removed or they will grow like cancer. You warn the rest not to walk in the ways those people walk. There is a hope at the end of this introduction. In verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have koinonia with us, and indeed our koinonia is with the Father and with the Son. Verse 4, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John ends the introduction with hope. He has a great, fantastic hope so that you too may have fellowship with us. That, every, that is every pastor's heart. That the, that the flock under his care would have koinonia, fellowship with one another. That is every believer's heart. To come in to the, to the banquet. That is what we tell others outside of the body of Christ. Come in. There's room at the table. You have a home here. Lay down your burdens and come to the cross. There's koinonia to be had with the Father and with the Son and with each other. This is John's great hope for them. Come into the banquet. We have koinonia with the Son and the Father. Come, associate, partner, be part of this body. With that said, John will outline in the next coming weeks as we go through the first John, he will outline, he will outline exactly how people either put themselves inside or outside of fellowship. About being inside the light or being the darkness. Being alive or being dead. And the warning is not to walk as those who walk in darkness and in death walk. He gives us the tools for discernment and this, a command above all others to love and to love as God tells us to love, not as we define love. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Verse 4 is a very short verse. And we are writing these things so that our, some of your translations will say, your joy may be complete. All of what we will go over in church, period, will be for your joy. So that you may have joy and have it to the full. Complete joy. 
This is when God's people are united under him and through him and by him. There's often times that need pruning in the church as a whole and in ourselves personally. It is where we ask the Holy Spirit, search me. What in me is causing a problem? What in me is not like Jesus Christ? And telling God, take your shears and prune it. This is what makes a healthy church, not numbers. This is what makes a healthy church, not a healthy bottom line. What makes a healthy church is that we are united under Christ. In summary, where is your joy found? Where is your life found? Where is your understanding found? If it is found in anybody other than Jesus Christ, you are who John is talking about. Koinonia, being a coin-operated church. Has your koinonia with another believer grown cold? Do you have something against a brother or sister in Christ? Romans 12 11 says that if possible with us to live at peace. John will tell us to love the brothers. 1 John 3.14, which we'll go over in another sermon, will say that we know that we've been brought from death to life, that we love other believers. You know, one of the most silly comments people make is that I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You got a friend? Tell him you hate his wife every day. See how much he's a friend of yours. You got a friend, tell him, I hate your husband. I like you a lot. I hate your husband, though. Everything he does, the way he chews, the way he looks. And every day, tell him that. See how well, see how good of friends you are in a while. John tells us that if we know that we've been brought from death to life, that we know that because we love the congregation of believers. Where are you at today? Is there needing to be repentance? Is there koinonia that needs to be restored? Is it, if it's on your part, even if it's 10%, make sure to take care of that 10%. Apologize for that 10%. They may not apologize for the 90%. They're wrong. But it's not about them. It's about you. It's about at all, in all means, to live at peace with others. I remember one time doing that, and the person was 90% of the wrong. I was 10% in the wrong. I came to them. I said, I am sorry about this. And they said, yeah, you were being a real jerk. And that was the end of the conversation. I was biting my lip, and I'm like... This is not how it's supposed to go. He's supposed to say, you're right, I was wrong too, and we're supposed to hug it out. Not how it worked. We were at peace. We didn't have koinonia at that moment. We did later on. But as long as it depends on us to live at peace with others. Would you please stand as we, as we end in our final song of worship?